Welcome to Tea, Toast, and Trivia. I am your host, Rebecca Budd, and I am looking forward to sharing this moment with you. I am delighted and thrilled my dear friend and poet, Jean-Jacques Fournier, is with me today to speak about crows and ravens within his poetry. As background, ravens and crows are embedded within our mythologies from ancient times. In Greek mythology, the crow was a symbol of Apollo in his role as the god of prophecy. In Norse mythology, Odin is portrayed by a raven. In Celtic mythology, Morrigan, the warrior goddess, appears in the form of a crow or raven. Crows and ravens have been envisioned as a mediator between life and death. They have been known as tricksters and mischief makers. Jean-Jacques has great insight into these magnificent creatures. So put the kettle on and add to this exciting discussion on tea, toast, and trivia. Welcome, Jean-Jacques. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure to be here. Ravens, crows, how did this come about? Good question. Enjoyment of watching the interaction between these amazing birds, discovering things about them that as a child, to a point where they became, in my mind, kind of flying human beings. Vivid imagination of children that went into poetry to describe the feelings that I had. You asked me what prompted a poem about the crow, the mood, I guess, wanting to be something other than human, what it would be like to be flying. First and foremost, it was the crow, the raven came later. So that's how that poem became, came alive, if you will. This is the beginning, which I embraced because I know that we look at crows in different ways. You wrote, The crow. I am the crow in a grave, dark world. The soul in plight, black as the night, forced to live in endless flight, looking for a path to freedom I seek. As anxiety nears, I would dare tell this aging meek who'll suffer hell will fly with the devil for a ray of light that shows way clear in the dead of night to end these journeys of once errant night. Now a wearying soul when age finds the crow who has reached wise and old. I get goosebumps. <laughs> well, it's the imagination of a child that still lives in all of us, you know, as humans. I don't think we ever lose that. So it's easy enough if you're writing poetry and invent based on what you see or what you remember. You see them dark and you hear stories. And the stories were always, to me, in my ear, negative. You know, they said things about those birds, like the raven and the crow, that they attacked, they were dangerous. Like Alan Poe in his poem about the raven that goes on for seven minutes. He made birds like the raven mysterious, as far as I'm concerned. At that era, it was easy for people to imagine things. People were superstitious, and they believed in different kinds of cults existed. So the raven and the crow, sort of a cult following. Matter of fact, I remember Halloween, the place where it was nothing but crows and dark things. And <laughs> it's unfair to them. If they attack people, 
It's because they have a level of intelligence that say, hey, I don't stand being treated like that. I'm as good as you are, in their minds anyway. They are intelligent. There's no question. Yeah. Well, they speak our language. I think I sent you something where a girl has got this crow on her arm and she talks to it. Hello. And the crow repeats, hello. How are you? And he repeats, how are you? And then she gives him something to eat and she pulls back. And when she said, how are you? And he'll say, hello. Just to be, to be a trickster, you know. <laughs> and the fact is, is that it was legible. You could hear it. You always thought it was a ventriloquist speaking, <laughs> but it wasn't. It was honest. Like I said before, they've been said to be, have a genius. You know, they're a genius bird. They've been referred to that way. Well, it was interesting. Every night I go out and there is a collection. And as you said, there is a special intelligence because they are able to work in community. They talk to each other. There are crows that are the ones that guide other crows to the roost every night. And I see them at about four or five. They collect all over Vancouver and North Vancouver, and they make their way to the roost. And there's a lot of chattering. So I've been trying to learn crow language. Have you? <laughs> I have a hard enough time speaking the one I'm speaking now. <laughs> no, I haven't done that, but I find it interesting. We lost them for about two years. Before, they were always here. And then for two years, never saw them again. And now, Diane was telling me, they started coming around. She can walk in the garden, and they'll be there. They don't fly away anymore. Well, she's a very kind person. They recognize it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, that end of the poem that I started, you said the words, once an errant night. Now, I looked into this and found out that the word errant means in search of adventure. You know, I was impersonating that, that animal, and I imagined flying around, eventually, they, they can't just be flying in circles for nothing. They're looking for something. So it's easy enough to turn that something into adventure. Sort of a fairy tale story, but trying to keep it borderline accurate and correct, and a part of it was sort of fantasizing. After the crow got older and he, you know, he got tired of flying all the time, he wanted to land somewhere where he'd have peace. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that builds the story. And I understand that crows in mythology were once white and something happened and they somehow turned black. But as far as I know, they always seem like perfect ladies and gentlemen. They always dress up in their finest. I think that they're going off to some fancy ball in their tuxedos. But they have different colors. They're not all black. The ones that we know here in North America are black, especially the raven is huge and black, very black. But there's a, there's a crow in Italy that has, that's black and it has a big patch of, of bluish-gray color, like a saddle across the back. You sent me an article that suggested that they have memory, especially for bad experiences. Oh, yes, absolutely. They remember, and that's the thing about them. If you do damage, they're ostracized from their society. They don't treat them right. And they have to have memory to be able to talk and repeat words. You also said in your poem, The Raven, A Mysterious Fellow, you have these words. No matter the place to share information among fellow ravens that identify humans who mean recognize a genius well-proven, whose cawing bellows 
it almost seems that we're afraid of crows and ravens because of their superior intelligence. Do you think this is why our mythologies give ravens and crows magical powers? The magical powers had to be attached to them in the, maybe in the 1800s. They were creatures and they were frightening because of their intelligence. I don't think we discovered that as a more modern society. Uh, I think we just carried those stories because there's a side of us that uh, allows us to interpret things in spite of the mystery and in spite of the fright that it might have caused in earlier years. It's, we still hang on to it. And uh, for me, it's always interesting because it's inspiring some things that I write. And mythology is one of them. So coming back to The Raven, I wrote in more detail. Again, it's, it's fantasizing, if you will. But the story is more weighty, if I can use that expression. What I wrote about crows was kind of light. But The Ravens is more weighty because of all the stories that I read, the kind of bird that they are, caused people to put labels on them which I think is unfair. So I, I was trying to write and to give the raven the same floor as a human being has, and maybe a little bit better because he remembers not being treated well, and he does something about it, not to destroy the opposition, but to walk away from it, to keep a, a distance. Well, it was interesting because there is a progression that I see from the very beginning and throughout your poetry, there is a redemptive quality that you place into the ravens. And I thought, yes, there is redemption in everything we do. And this is how you have reflected upon a species that has graced our world for many, many years. That's what you're talking about. Long perceived as a distorted entity. Building a wall between the human being and a bird. I was playing uh, the devil's advocate and being on the raven's side, and you and I do, and I think some people really don't see uh, anything wrong or bad about the bird. So, can I ask you to do me a big favor? Would you recite your poem, The Raven, for me? The Raven, the sentient courtway. Fascinating raven has us on the run, not to lose vision in the midnight sun, rising to his haven, neath a fading light that a raven shuns in his steely flight of power past need, a genius Einsteinian, be mesmerizing breed. Not a common fowl, rudely thus applied, Nascent one suspect held be souls apart, would but so reflect as creature so stark, do assume the raven be a devil of the dark. As this timeless bird ne'er want to grieve, shan't fail be heard wanting to believe, image not made blur, or fine be perceived by some who'd infer. He be a coarse seed, though we by far concur, as a sentient cordivy holds a virtuoso raven, not of a black heart be. Thank you for that rendition of your poetry. And to hear it, 
in your voice is significant and profound. With poetry, you have opened the whole idea of embracing nature as it is supposed to be embraced. I don't think I'm trying to be too dogmatic about it. To me, writing poetry, you know, there's, there's verse and there's poetry. I read a lot of poetry that are short stories. They're nice and they're pleasant. Sometimes they're sad. I like to write poetry the way somebody paints an abstract painting. You can come back a hundred times, and every time you look at it, you find something different to see it differently than you did the first time or the tenth time or the fifteenth time. I like to think when somebody makes a comment on what I've written, what happens is that I learn something new about what I wrote. When I wrote it, I saw it differently, but I left it open for other people to make up their own minds, hoping that they'll gain a more interest in what I write than if I write something sort of framed to be seen only in one way. And if they don't really like it, that's, you know, you shuffle aside and you, you never see it again. I stop looking at a lot of my poetry because I keep changing, because I see something different that I like better. <laughs> I've got, I don't know, 23, 2,400 poems written. Some, some I don't remember. And I used to just discard them. Then I stopped doing that. I just give it another wrinkle on it and store it, and someday come back to it. Or if I need to find a poem, it might have been written three or four times, and there's a better version, depending on the day I look at it. <laughs> if I go back the following week, I may pick another one of the, the version of three or four. <laughs> Somebody asked to publish a poem of mine on their blog. Would I give them permission? And I said, sure, no problem. So I said, do you mind if I go into your blog and I pick something out? And I said, no, not at all. Six or seven hundred poems on my blog. And they came out with one poem and they sent it to me. <laughs> I hadn't recognized it. It's, you know, The Way Home. And it's really a good poem. So I was pleased. To me, that's what poetry is. It's a communication medium, if you will, that you send out there and hope that there's a concourse, the back and forth that goes on, like we have now. I think uh, it's like painting. You can learn the basics of how to apply your paint and how to fix a canvas. But the basics you learn to write poetry is to learn the language and then put your imagination, give it freedom and send it out there and, and let it create. If, if you have a creative streak, you know that you have to have that. You've developed that because you want to build something. It never stops. And it's a learning process, isn't it? It's an iteration of learning. And when you learn something here, you take that with you and you embellish it. I look at some of my writing from the beginning and I can see that I have learned that much more or I can add that extra little bit that would add. And I think that's important that when we finish a painting or a poetry or a book, it's not really finished. It's never finished. It's, you just have to put a stop to it. I had a friend, he died last two years ago now, Jim Ritchie in the Bronx. He's a sculptor. He's originally Canadian from Panamont Royal in Montreal. And he left in 57 and did fantastic work. I have about nine of his sculptures. And he kept after me to publish. And it was never good enough. And he said, hey, this is reality, buddy. He says, you know, I look at the sculptures I've done. I can't change them anymore because they're either in marble or, or they're in bronze. But there's always something wrong with them. It's never perfect. 
Well, I guess there's no such thing as perfection. And uh, whatever you create, when it's finished, it's never completely finished. So you learn to live with it, and you just put a stop. Another year later, when everybody else has forgotten, then you take it out and you change it, and you hope they don't remember the original one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Jean-Jacques, we come to poetry because we're looking for something that we cannot experience on our own. We have to have a catalyst that gives us the words, whether we write it, whether we read it, or whether we listen to it in audio form. But it helps click into our memory or into our mind our own experience. And I think that is what you bring out in your poetry. You allow me to express my own thoughts based on my experience and my events that have happened in my life. And that is a gift that you give to everyone who reads your poetry. And I want to say thank you, thank you, and thank you. Well, that's quite a compliment. I accept. <laughs> I accept. I'm not sure. <laughs> I agree. But anyway, like I said, it's never perfect for anybody. So. And I think that's the part that I appreciate most. The spirit of, of creativity, of art, of uh, literature, of poetry speaks to a broader thought that we do. We want to leave our mark. We want to leave hope for the next generation. Leaving your mark, that's a good point. I spent a lot of years saying, who will remember? A lot of people on this planet. And, and everybody, in one way or another, even if they don't admit it, even if they turn their nose up at the thought of it, we don't want to be just a, a nothing. We'd like at least somebody to remember us. Absolutely. And what's even more profound is that when a creative output happens, for example, a painting, a book, poetry, it becomes a life of their own. You do not own it anymore. When it's out there, it belongs to the universe. And it survives way beyond the years of the creator. Yeah, it does. And you have embraced it in your heart and added it to your own personal experience. And maybe, just maybe, it might prompt you to do something creative going forward. Early in life, I didn't like poetry at all. You know, when I started to read, and we were a reading family, so we started very young. Much later in life, I started fooling around with it, and I saw the creative aspect of it. I had before, but it was a more a part of your studies, you know, and things of that nature. Really got interested in when I decided to leave Canada, which was in the 70s, and moved to California. They're a great place, you know, for fantasy California, so I can get into all kinds of new things. And it invented me, actually, to become very serious about writing poetry. So it was a good move for me to go and spend five years out there. Basically, when I started to write, it was just to please myself and nothing else. I never thought I'd be serious about it. And I don't really think I'm serious about it. It's the creative thing that I like about it. When you put something together and it works, sometimes it happens within 20 minutes. Another time it'll take three weeks or a month. It, it, you get stuck in a, in a rut and you can't get out of it. Another time, I don't know, it's that mood thing. It just rambles off and within 10, 15 minutes from beginning to end, it's finished. All you need to do is clean it up a bit. That's the part that's enjoyable, you know, the creative aspect of it. Isn't it interesting that one decision changes our lives and it goes in a different direction just by one move? And there you are. And there you are. (laughs) 
Thank you, Jean-Jacques, for coming on Tea, Toast, and Trivia. My pleasure to be here. And you will come back again. We will. And until next time, remember, you're only an internet click away from Jean-Jacques Fournier. I promise you, you will come away with exciting thoughts just generated by the music of his words. Thank you, Jean-Jacques. Thanks, Rebecca. Nice to be with you again. Look forward to another time.